Hello and welcome everybody to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell and today I'm joined by a friend who will never find himself on the friendship development team because he's already on the first team. It's Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. <laughs> Hello, Taylor Rockwell. I think I am the captain, top goal scorer, goalkeeper, mm-hmm. star defender, just the whole lot on the friendship the team, lot. I think. <laughs> the, the whole one. And then Ryan is the occasionally uh, utilized deputy, I think. Uh, just firing shots at Ryan Bailey right out of the gate on this episode of Soccer <laughs> Standard, 101. Standard, yeah. Typical for us when he's not on it. And when he's on it, actually. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. Especially if we can sneak them past when he's not paying attention. That's always a bonus. Uh, if you are new to Soccer 101, this is a podcast connected to our other show, The Total Soccer Show. We use this space to explore more basic concepts in greater detail or to answer questions that seem obvious but usually have deeper histories behind them. On today's episode, we're exploring the basics of reserve leagues and development leagues, what they are, why they're important, how they differ. Uh, The goal, as always, is to come up with a show that appeals to newbies, people who are new to soccer, but also allows people who've watched for a very long time to hopefully learn something new. I say that to then say we're starting off with a very basic question. Graham, like for the terminology aspect of things as we go forward, starting Mm -hmm. on the most basic level, when we talk about a player training or playing for the first team or the senior team, what do we mean? I feel like it's important to establish that before we get into all the different permutations underneath. So that would that would be the the team that we all watch on TV right. playing in the Premier League. So Manchester United's first team would be players like Marcus Rashford and Casemiro and 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 those guys. And obviously, soccer clubs will have will typically have more players on their books than they require for the first team for their senior squads. They have youth players, they have fringe players, um, players who are maybe injured at that particular moment, players who are essentially sur- surplus to requirements. And so they will have other teams, whether that is youth teams that could be under 16s, under 18s, under 19s. Um, it could be a reserve team. And then if you're good enough from those ranks, typically you will be promoted to the first team where we will watch you and talk about you on this podcast. Right, exactly. So let's say Crystal Palace, as an example from the Premier League, they have, I believe, 24, 25 players on the senior team, another 14 out on loan, and then a whopping 35 on their U21 team. Uh, Graham, they probably don't need 73 players in total. So the idea, as you said there, is to have uh, a lot of youngsters coming through so you can develop them so they can take the place of first team players, but also you have reserve teamers who are maybe a little bit above that 21-year-old threshold uh, to be there in case somebody gets hurt in case you need depth but you want basically a ton of players but you want them all to be able to play at least some minutes and not all just be sitting on the bench I don't think having 11 players on the pitch and 62 sitting on the sidelines would go very well it works for football but you can rotate a bit more than you can there yeah exactly so whether we're talking about reserve leagues or development I mean I guess there's a slight difference here but for reserve leagues certainly you need something to keep those players off the mm-hmm. Xbox you need something yeah. to keep them fit and match sharp so that if they if they are needed they are ready and up to speed and and, and they are match fit one recommendation I would make if, if anyone is, is still a little bit confused by this or maybe wants to pad out their knowledge of reserve teams and youth teams is play football manager because mm-hmm. before every single match you have to stipulate which of your players and this is another thing where it gets slightly confusing you can sometimes send 
senior squad players down to the reserve team or even to the development teams to play games if they need to get up to match fitness. Um, we see that quite often with players who have been out with a long injury. They will play some games for the, for the for the development teams, for the reserve teams. And Football Manager gets you to do that every single week. And so that's that's kind of where my knowledge of these leagues and, mm. and, and reserve teams and development teams and basically my entire knowledge of soccer comes from Football Manager. Um, so yeah, if anyone is interested in, in, in kind of some engagement and, and actually learning how to do that, Football Manager is a good way to do it. And but how yeah, is that not overwhelming, by the way, to have to manage all of those things? Every time I've tried to play Football Manager, I end up feeling like 400 things are falling through the cracks yeah. and I'm not handling anything particularly well. Uh, yeah, that is the sense I get as well. I just batter through that sense. <laughs> or what you can do is you can go into your staff responsibilities and you ah. can delegate everything like that to your assistant manager or your head of youth development, um, which is kind of the cop-out way to do it. Sometimes I, sometimes I do that when I'm, I'm not really feeling it. Or I'll do it for a few matches and then come back to it. But yeah, football manager is great for that sort of thing. Um, development leagues are slightly different to reserve leagues in that they are purely there to develop young players. They are generally still professional, but clubs use those leagues to bring through players for the first team. So it's it's not as competitive as the senior leagues and maybe not as competitive as even as the, re- the reserve leagues or that, that could be a, a subject of kind of discussion. Um, but they do give young players a taste of competitive soccer for the first time, which mm-hmm. the idea is that that helps their development. So I do think reserve team and development teams sort of get used interchangeably. And I don't think yeah. that's that big of a deal. But you've sort of drawn a distinction there uh, to echo that if we were sort of establishing our own understanding of things. I would echo what you've said. I would say a reserve team to me, uh, I'm going straight up with the Wikipedia definition because why not? Uh, Reserve team would be backup players for the first team, young players who need playing time to improve, and then members of the first team who are recovering from injury, which is why you'll sometimes see Scott McTominay playing with the U21s. Like You get a player coming back from injury, you're going to give them some minutes there where it's maybe less competitive, less in the spotlight. Uh, Whereas to your point, a development team does seem to me to be much more, very much young players with a few maybe overage, but mostly very yeah. young players, and you were having that team to develop talent, to develop the way they play, less so to win competitions and be the best in their league. Yeah, generally speaking, reserve leagues and reserve teams are, are kind of a little bit of a dated concept. They're things that reserve teams used to, were, were a thing that were very common kind of in the early 2000s. The Premier League used to have a reserve league and then a development league. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later on. But the Premier League has kind of merged those two things together. Now you have Premier League 2, which is essentially an under-23 league, but you are still allowed overage players. And that's how you end up with Tom Huddleston, uh, not Loki, the the former midfielder who used to play for Spurs. He's on the books at Manchester United, despite the fact he's 36. He is a player coach for Manchester United, and he plays Premier League 2 games as one of the overage players. And I guess Man United are banking on his coaching ability. Almost the value of having a coach on the pitch for those young players players as well as I think the logic as to why you get some players like that at, at, at certain clubs I think Scott Carson as well is maybe like that has or has been like that at Manchester City in the past in Premier League too but yeah reserve teams and leagues are maybe slightly dated we, we've maybe moved on from that concept but nonetheless there is a, an element of the old reserve league in leagues like the Premier League too. 
And, and again, I think it can be a little bit murky because, uh, as we've talked about, you can still have your academy teams. So you can have U16s, U18s, whatever. But then you might have a development team. You might have another sort of like uh, B team of sorts, which isn't quite official, but like trains separately from the first team or trains in coordination with them. So you can have lots of different teams in lots of different competitions. And I think in some uh, leagues, in some countries, you have requirements about where teams are allowed to play. And if you have to field a team, uh, but like famously Brentford didn't have an academy team uh, for a very long time. They went a different route. Now they have an academy back, but you can have sort of teams that function outside of the norm. For the most part, you're going to have an academy and then you're going to have this sort of yep. development team that allows you to bridge that gap a bit more. Uh, but Graham, you will, will then also get a, a strange situation as you have in a few different leagues, uh, especially in Europe and in the United States until recently, where you will have those development teams, those reserve teams playing in the same pyramid as the senior team. So a famous one would be uh, Real Madrid and Real Madrid Castilla. Uh, oftentimes that Castilla team is playing in the second division in Spain. And there are instances, uh, Villarreal, I think is near the top of the table right now, but you will get those sort of development teams who then could be promoted, but because there are regulations about how far they can go, you can't, obviously can't have two teams competing in the same league. That would be a conflict of interest, but you will have those teams sort of playing against other senior teams where one team is all 21-year-olds and one team is mostly 30-year-olds or something along those lines. Yeah, and I think Spain is a great example of where um, the term we would use in Scottish football is cult teams. I'm not sure if that is used anywhere else, but I'll call them cult teams because... Yeah, exactly. That's where that comes from. Um, but yeah, Colt teams and the professional setup is something we have in Scotland. I don't think it's been that successful, but in Spain it has been, I think, very successful, or at least it has been for Real Madrid and Barcelona and the teams that have B teams, because obviously it's, it's only the big clubs that are, that are able to have those, those teams. So just recently, Alvaro Rodriguez, the, the teenage, teenage striker we spoke about on weekend review, who scored the equaliser in the Madrid derby on uh, on Saturday. He was playing for uh, Castilla earlier this season. Uh, Fede Valverde as well came through Castilla. Vinicius Jr., when he was signed from Brazil, he's not put into the first team straight away. He goes into Real Madrid Castilla and that's where they acclimatise him, I guess, to his new surroundings. So you can do that with new signings as well. And then at Barcelona, Pep Guardiola got his first management job at Barca B. Javi Alonso was Real Sociedad B manager for a long time. Zidane so they're too, at, right? I think Zidane started at Real Madrid Castilla. That's right. That's right. I, I kind of forgot that Zidane, because Zidane Zidane, I forgot he that he needed some sort of in, coaching yeah. induction. And, but he, he may even have started yeah. with the C team and then got the B team job and then got the senior job, or maybe that was Pep. Uh, but you can't, yeah, you can't have that as well. It's a way to, I think, also get licenses along the way too. Yeah, I can't imagine Rafa Benitez, who was the manager no. at that time, was very happy about Zinedine Zidane being the Real Madrid Castilla manager. Yeah, he not. knew what was coming, surely. And and true enough, Zidane did replace Rafa Benitez eventually. Um, they have them in Germany as well. So so Bayern Munich have a B team in the professional setup. Bayern Munich 2 are in the regional leagues, which is the fourth tier of, of German football, and they perform a, a similar role. And as I say, we have something similar in Scotland where Celtic Rangers have teams just outside the SPFL pyramid. Um, they're outside the pyramid because this has been such a toxic subject for fans here, and this is where I'm going to editorialise a little bit. Uh, personally speaking, the day that Celtic and Rangers have B teams in the Scottish senior pyramid is probably the day that I stop supporting Sterling Albion, quite quite frankly, which would be a sad day just because that league, 
a league with B teams in it is not a real competitive league, in my opinion. It's one of my most kind of, uh, one of, one of the strongest views I hold is Colt teams. I don't want them anywhere near the pyramid. But for now, there is a, there is a stoppage. They can't actually go up into the pyramid. There's just a lot of pressure to remove that stoppage and have two Celtic Rangers teams in, in, in the pyramid, which is yeah, not and, ideal. And you do have, I think that is sort of the exception. So you'll have in the Premier League, you have them existing outside of the pyramid. Now in Major League Soccer, you have MLS Next Pro, which has removed teams. Formerly, you had all the reserve teams playing in USL in varying levels. Uh, now they've sort of solidified into MLS Next Pro. 28 teams, 27 of which are reserve MLS teams, and then Rochester in there because reasons. I'm still not entirely sure about that one. Um <laughs> But I share your perspective, Graham. To, uh, to be honest, I have that same level of discomfort with those reserve teams playing in the lower leagues. And it's less so because they're going to dominate. Real Madrid's Castilla team are always going to be the best. It's kind of the opposite of that. I think oftentimes you don't have those teams winning the competition. Sometimes you will, but Barca B right now I think is much closer to the bottom of their sort of division than they are near the top. And that's because their development, they are developing young players. The goal is to get them to play the style that the senior team plays. So if you're Barcelona, it's a 4-3-3. You've got the pivot. You've got like the wide attackers who are boots on the chalk. You've, you've got the sort of similarities between that senior team and the reserve team so that those players coming through, those development players are learning how to play that Barca style. Uh, I think that that same thing exists across the board where even if it's not the same style, you are preparing those players to play a style of a, a style of play or to think a certain way or just to like develop certain aspects of their game. Now you always want players senior or academy or whatever to continue to improve, but there's no argument to me that like uh, a senior team player for Crystal Palace is trying to win the Premier League or uh, a team in a, a, Bar- a Barnsley player is trying to win the championship or a Burnley player is trying to win the championship. They're not trying primarily to develop into a better player. Whereas those young teams, it's about finding what what young players can do and can they thrive in this competition? Can they perform at this level? And I just remember going back to the days when the Richmond Kickers were playing the Montreal reserve team or the Toronto reserve team. Number one is you're getting a ton of 16-year-olds coming down who maybe have played together at, like in disparate times and you'll have some 18-year-olds, some 16-year-olds, maybe you'll have a 24-year-old in there. But it's pretty clear that they haven't played together that much. And so... It doesn't really, even if the score lines were close, it was still sort of one team is a bunch of veteran senior players who want to win the league, and one is a bunch of young players who hope to make their senior team one day and are trying to prove that in that way. So it's just, it's a different motivation from the jump. And then also, when you have a reserve team, uh, like when the kickers would go play the Toronto 2 team, they would still play at Toronto's training facility. And I think they would get like the parents of the academy players tuning up and it's or turning up. And it's not like in League One, uh, in USL League One, crowds are insane. But to go from a game where you have 2,000 people there and it's 2,000 people cheering and playing drums and chanting and waving flags to an empty sort of practice field where you have 10 people there, it, it just, it kills that competitive atmosphere in my mind. It's really clear yeah. right away that one of those teams is there to be a senior professional team. And one of those is teenagers trying to figure it out. And and that's why these big clubs want B teams in the, in the professional exactly. setup rather yeah. than having their best young players in development and, and reserve leagues. Um, I can see the argument from their point of view. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that having young players in the in the senior setup from a younger age produces 
better players, or rather, it, it, it gives those young players a better chance of making it to the top of the senior game where they are being exposed to the physicality and just generally better players at a younger age. The, the biggest criticism of, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest criticism of reserve and development leagues is that they're not very competitive at all. So it doesn't prepare young players for going into the, into the senior game. And that is where uh, cult teams, as I would call them, are, are, are useful. But as a fan of a lower league team, and just generally talking on principle, I, I just can't really get on board with them um, because while Rangers, let's say Rangers or Celtic were in the, the, the Scottish League 2, they may treat that as a, as a development league for them. But for my team, that's not a development league at all. That is our league. And exactly. you look at yeah. where Real Madrid and uh, Real Madrid Castilla are in their league. They're in the Primera Federación. They're one point behind Deportivo La, La Coruña, which is like this historic club with loads of history, massive fan base. And so there is a disconnect between how they, the parameters of the league for them, where they're viewing it as maybe not as competitive as other teams. And then for other teams, this is just their, this is their league. It's purely competitive. So I, I, I again, I, I understand why clubs want to have their teams in the professional setup. I also just think it's a way for the rich to get even richer because in Scotland, it's often argued that Celtic and Rangers will use their Colt teams to produce, produce better players for the national team. And I just don't think that holds up really at all because the players that are good enough for the national team are being used by the first team from, from that young age anyway. So players like Leon King for Rangers is in that first team at 18, 17 years old. And the players who maybe will be good enough for the senior game who are in these Colt teams, Rangers and Celtic, or if it's, you know, Real Madrid, Castilla or whoever, Bayern, Bayern Munich too, generally speaking, they will, they will sell them on. So players like Julian Green who was not never good enough for Bayern Munich, but they sell they sell them on and they and it's just a case of them using those teams to improve their bottom line and in, improve the number of players that they can sell. So I'm very cynical about the whole thing, but I can see for me the perfect situation is I'm going to use another perfect uh, personal example. Kai Fotheringham, you might have heard of him. I spoke about him a few times on the podcast this season. He was on loan at Sterling Albion, but he was playing development games during the week for Dundee United. So he's still getting the elite environment, well, in Scotland, mm. the elite of environment at Dundee United. He's playing the development league games, but then he's going on loan to a competitive senior pyramid team without devaluing that that senior pyramid at all. That is the ideal situation for me. So I think the loan market is where... The, the best solution for this is which which i think is maybe sort of what they're trying to do with mls next pro because i think back to there was a time period when the kickers were sort of not quite the farm team the richmond kickers where i am uh were not quite the farm team for dc united but they had this sort of unofficial relationship where it's theoretically a 90 minute drive from uh, dc down 95 to richmond it can be four hours sometimes but theoretically like 90 minutes to two hours and so you would have players who would uh be on loan who would drive down uh for like on saturday for the day of a game get there do the sort of walkthrough or maybe they'd come friday do the walkthrough be there saturday for the game uh whether or not they played and then they would go back to dc that night and then they would be there for dc united training and for any sort of potential opportunities if they got called up and i think that does a similar thing and i think that's what mls next pro is meant to do as well it puts them into a competitive atmosphere against other development teams and then i think with rochester and other independent teams coming in i think the idea will is that you will still get sort of some teams that are treating it as a a primary outing and then you'll still get the majority treating it as an opportunity to develop players for that next step so i think that sort of 
can work a little bit better because then you're getting the best of both worlds. I like that idea, even even if it sounds chaotic because you've got players sort of moving back and forth between teams, but I think it it accomplishes uh, some of those goals pretty well. And I think ultimately what I end up sort of erring on the side of is when you look at something like the Netherlands, where you have young PSV, young Ajax, consistently in the Erste Divisie, the second division, uh, and again, not always winning it, sometimes winning it, uh, sometimes qualifying for promotion playoffs, but then they can't really do anything because they're not going to get promoted. But I think right there, you see how strong those teams can be. But you know that they're not trying to win because they can't win. They can't get promoted. They can win the title, but it doesn't really mean that much because next season, most of those players are going to be promoted to the senior team or moved on. And I just think it's it's ultimately, it's a bad look. It just looks like you have the, like the second division in your country is composed of some teams that are really trying to get into the top division and really, really care. And then a few teams that are sort of just there to bring up young players. And it just shows to me the disparity even in a country like the Netherlands, or to your point, if Scotland did this, my assumption is that Celtic 2 would be one of those teams that is close to the top of the Scottish Championship or occasionally qualifying but not able to move up because you can't have two teams in there. And again, right there, it just sort of shows the cracks in the foundation that if Celtic are winning the uh, the Premier League every single season of the Scottish Premiership every single season and then also have their reserve team near the top of the second division it just shows that that club is the dominant club and if Rangers are right there with them it sort of points out the disparity all the more yeah the one thing I would say for the Dutch setup and I did I did look into um, how they do things in, in, in the Netherlands for this episode but I found that they there's a certain stipulation over a five-year period where they have to promote a certain number of players to their senior squad per season. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not as clear as you need to put two, or it's not as uh, as clear-cut as you need to promote two players every season. If one season you promoted, you know, five, then the next season maybe you wouldn't need to promote as many. It's, it's like a five-season uh, snapshot. And so that that is maybe... That's maybe slightly better because that does say to me that at the heart of that setup is player development is at the core of 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 that setup. Whereas in other countries there there aren't those stipulations. It's just a way for Real Madrid and Barcelona to have two teams in in the pyramid and have Vinicius Junior, a Brazilian winger, signed for what fifty million euros or something, like settle in in the third tier of Spanish football before going into the the the, the top tier with Real Madrid, which doesn't really sit well with me. But yeah, just just principally, I'm, I I think it it does. I agree with you. It, it highlights the disparity between the the haves and and the haves nots. Yeah, because even Julian uh, Araujo, Araujo, I'm never entirely sure which one of those it's supposed to be. Apologies, uh, but he moves from the Galaxy to Barcelona in the January window. We're recording this in now March of 2023. Uh, but when he moves. It is with the understanding that he will be with Barcelona B, and that's exactly where he is. And you do get that. You get those sort of. He was only what, like four or five million, but you will get those 30 and 40 million uh, euro players who move and then they're with that B team to sort of get them uh, uh, some reps, get them some minutes, and then they can make that senior team debut. And, and in my mind, that is a way to stockpile talent and keep it relatively happy, keep them sort of uh, competing towards making that senior team. But again, I think it's just you're never going to have like Norwich right now or outside of the playoff spots in the championship Short of players who are on loan or players who are very unhappy, no one in that Norwich team 
is thinking, if I have a really good season here, even if we finish outside of the playoffs, regardless of where we finish in the table, I'll get to move up to a team in the Premier League, no doubt. And and I think if you replace Norwich with uh, Manchester City B into that conversation, those players would like to make the playoffs. I think every player wants to win. Nobody goes out there to lose but look good themselves, unless they're, I don't know, maybe Zlatan. Uh, but short of him, it feels like those players, those reserve team players, if it's Man City B in Norwich's spot, are content to make the playoffs, but it's not the end-all be-all. And I think that is what I keep going back to, is like you can't have 20 teams in your league all like fighting tooth and nail to make the playoffs, to be in the promotion spots, and then have four teams that are just sort of like, yeah, whatever, whatever happens. Some of us will still be here next year. Some of us will be moved on to the senior team. Some of us will be moved on to the senior team before Taylor finishes this sentence. So it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it just, when you have those competing priorities, it just diminishes the overall standing of the league in my mind, the overall competitiveness of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then off on a, off on a slight tangent, um, you have... A, a number of big clubs that have affiliate teams or sister teams who, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that's slightly better. I'm kind of thinking on the on the spot here. That sits a little bit better in my mind. Where Chelsea have or have had or have um, Vitesse in in yeah. the Netherlands, going way back. I think Manchester United had Royal Antwerp in Belgium. Yep. Obviously, you've kind of got the City Football Group umbrella. So. I guess if again, if you're loaning players to those clubs, it's still a case of those clubs trying to build the best team possible, which is very different from when you have development teams, and that's not necessarily the aim yeah, is to build yeah. the best team possible. So I, I think even sister teams is 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 a better way to maintain the integrity, the sporting integrity of of a league structure, while also looking after the development of young players. Yeah, I, and I think this goes with what you're saying, but uh, from what I understand. Part of Chelsea's sort of change in the way they operate under Clearwater Capital under Todd Bowley has been that the situation with Vitesse didn't really benefit them because Vitesse is still a club that is functioning uh, in the Dutch league, ideally in the Eredivisie for them and trying to be competitive, trying to win as much as they can. And so I think for Chelsea, who would send many, many players on loan there, some of whom would develop and become better and some of whom would sit on the bench and not play. That wasn't really what they were looking for. And so even there, that seems like an ideal system where you do sort of have the players who are ready rising to the top and the players who aren't are still involved in training and still much more likely to get first team opportunities or substitute appearances than they would be uh, with Chelsea. But it does sort of show you the talent disparity and who's ready for what. But it sounds like that didn't work for Chelsea. They wanted all 12 players on loan to be playing every single game because they want those players to develop and so then you get the sort of return to the domestic reserve league to give them that opportunity and so I think even with the sister teams you can still have that exploitation that shows the haves and the have-nots but I think functioning in the ideal setup where you have players going there to get minutes ideally playing in a similar philosophy or style I think that does make a lot of sense to me I think that's why teams can survive by being Teams that have eight, nine, ten players on loan every season because they're bringing them in to play a certain style in a certain way. And I think that sort of uh, uniformity or cohesiveness can make a difference too. I do wonder how this this ecosystem will survive once the loan restrictions really come in. Um, I believe January was the, the January transfer window we've just had was the first window where some restrictions uh, came in. Came in. I'm not entirely sure on what they are, but I remember reading some some things on um, 
players having to be re- recalled or loan deals being cancelled because they were they were hitting the threshold. So I think something did come in, and I think they're going to get stricter and stricter with every transfer window over the next year and a half. And so I, I, I do kind of wonder how that is going to impact on clubs hoarding players, mm-hmm. on them essentially being forced into creating B teams and Colt teams because they've got nowhere else to put these players. There's no longer the option to have a Kai Fotheringham at Stirling Albion for half the season. They, they, they want to give them the game time at their parent club, but they've got no other way to funnel them. And so in a weird way, from my perspective, that might kind of backfire because... Yes, when you look at Chelsea, what was it, like three or four years ago when they had 60 players out on loan and that seemed ridiculous and you, and you can certainly make the argument there that they are hoarding wealth and talent. But is it better that that talent is going out to other teams on loan than them creating a B team and having them play in League 2, playing Wimbledon? Mm-hmm. Every, I can't imagine Ryan would be very happy with no. that. So in a sense, it, it could kind of backfire. One thing that I've seen in relation to the sort of changes to uh, loan uh, or like like basically the implementation of limitations uh, is – and it's like a very conspiracy half-baked idea, but it does seem like a thing that teams with money will pursue is the idea that if you are a company uh, – I don't know. Let's say you're Ford and you have a person working in the garage who you've decided you want to be a salesperson – you're not really loaning them from one to the other. You're just moving them from one area that you control to another area that you control. And I have seen some speculation that clubs will approach this from a legal loophole standpoint and argue that is it technically a loan if we're moving a player from a club that we own to a club that we own? Or are we just sort of repositioning them with our same, within our same organizational structure? It's basically taking uh, the law to court to try to find this loophole so that if you own six clubs around the world, you're not loaning them. You're just sort of moving them around to different opportunities. And we're just moving employees. We're not loaning them. And that's a way to get around it. I don't know if that will ever be even even possibly a thing or even if it could be but it is an interesting idea that uh one way to get around loan uh, limitations and restrictions is to argue that they're not loans at all they're just uh, <laughs> player moves of their own accord or something like that yeah so the restrictions that have come in from from this season uh i'm reading a fifa document here is that a club may have a maximum of eight professionals loaned out and eight loaned in at any given time during a single season so that is quite the restriction on clubs that would send, you know, Chelsea, for example, would send tens and tens of players they had around the 44 world. 44 a couple of seasons ago out on loan. Yeah. Put it that way. I mean, that, yeah. that is, that is insane. And at points it's felt like, it, 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 during this episode, it's felt like I'm kind of defending that model, but that is an extreme case. That was, of, that was uh, their business model, right? With the idea yeah. was we sign players for two million. We develop them, they have a Chelsea branding, we loan them out for a couple of seasons, we sell them for $6 million, and now we've tripled our investment. That was, I think, the model they were going for that saw them lose a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's players that were on the books at Chelsea who I don't even think played a game. Oh, he played one match. I was sure Lucas Piazon uh, didn't play for Chelsea. Matt he was Miazga. at Chelsea. He was, he was, did Matt Miazga ever play for Chelsea? I don't did he believe get so. A- Maybe like preseason friendlies. I cannot imagine he got a yeah. first team minute. So, so Lucas Piazon was at Chelsea from 2012 to 2021 mm-hmm. and played one match there for them. Go. And he was on loan at Malaga, Vitesse, Frankfurt, Reading, Fulham, Chievo, Rio Ave in, in Portugal, and then he left in 2021. And he played one match. Interesting. It's all very interesting, Graham. So you don't want Rangers 2 playing against Sterling Albion, is that correct? That's what we landed I on? I, 
I'm not prepared to share the pies with Rangers B team. <laughs> Get your own pies. So, yeah, I guess we should acknowledge there are other perspectives on this when we are both bringing the it doesn't make sense to sort of mix the two. But I think for plenty of teams who have had teams who do that, I think if you are to go back to my Richmond kickers thing, if you're a Montreal fan or a Toronto fan, I think you care less about that than about. No, it's an opportunity to give 18 year olds the chance to play against senior players and see how they need to toughen up or handle the physicality or that they can handle the physicality. There are certainly positives to it. In my perspective, I think they're just outweighed by some of the negatives and just a loss in the luster of the competition, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I I would agree with that. I'm also very much club over country. um, So this idea that it's producing players for the national team, I'm a bit like shrug my shoulders emoji at that. Um, that feels but, very uh, anecdotal uh, to me, less so than a deliberate exactly. thing you're the, doing. So whenever this argument is made in Scotland, the, the, the kind of data is, is brought up and it doesn't really support that idea, really, um, that it produces more players for the national team. But I can see some logic in it. You know, the best the best technical players are at the biggest clubs, and so you want to expose them to the senior leagues earlier, and you can maybe do that through the Colt teams. But it seems for now that the development leagues um, are kind of the the most consistent way for for leagues for teams, excuse me, around the world to to do that. Well, Graham Ruthven, you are certainly uh, not a development player, as I said in the introduction. You are not a reserve. You are a first teamer all the way. But if I did have to loan you out, it would be without an option to buy. So I can always bring you back. I never, I never trust ah. those moves. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, that is my clunky way of bringing this one to a close. But Graham, thank you very much for taking the time to make sense of reserve teams, development teams, development leagues, and the differences therein. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, thanks so much for joining us here on Soccer 101. Hopefully, we have made sense of some things that didn't make sense previously and given you some things to think about. Uh, With that said, we will be back with another episode very soon for now. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.